Hello. Okay, for those of you who are joining us, I am so excited. <gasps> there she is. I have my OBGYN go live. Dr. Shield at the radio station. <gasps> Yay! <laughs> Perfect. That worked. Oh my gosh. So the last time we did this was my postpartum visit at eight weeks. <laughs> Not much has changed. I'm still in my sweats. Still at my house. <laughs> and breastfeeding. Yes, and breast. Well, not this time, but she's, oh, my love. she got her it. shots today, so she's a little bit cranky, unfortunately. Aww. Every time I'm like, I'm going to have this nailed in so that I don't have a baby with me when this is happening. And then every single time, whatever. You have to put it into the universe for it to be something else, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, my goodness, you are a very popular lady, Dr. Lawanzen. Um yeah. I set out the, the call for questions and the ladies came a knock and we have a lot of questions that were sent in for you. And it was really fun because um, some of them were from your patients or people yeah. who were like, know of you, but it was really fun seeing other patients that I knew were like my friends, but I didn't know that they were your patients. Mm -hmm. So it's actually a very small cool. community, I think. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, you probably get a lot of referrals. Like I found out about you from my friend Heather, who was like, mm -hmm. had an emergency C-section and she was like, Dr. Lawanzen was so wonderful, made me laugh the whole time and oh. just really took things to like a more comfortable level during a very intense situation. So I was like, give me her details. My doctor is retiring. I need her switching. Yeah. So you pr do you have a lot of people that were like referrals? From yep, a lot of friend communities, which is really great. And then even like moms who then refer their daughters, who then refer their friends. So I just oh. have to kind of keep track of the family trees just so I make sure I kind of know who's who. Um, cousins I've taken care of. And even some people um, have popped in that I've known from like high school that oh I didn't gosh. even realize until I walked in and was like, oh my gosh, oh. we know each other. Are is we that all okay? Kind of, yeah, is that <laughs> awkward? Or? Yeah. Um, no, it's fine. I mean, as long as they're comfortable to see me, I'm comfortable to see them. Hi, okay. Robin. Oh, that's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Yeah. <gasps> that's crazy. I love Robin. Oh my gosh. I am so obsessed with Robin. She's like my second aunt, I, or like eight aunts, but... And I, I think that you her. actually know um, an MA who used to work in my office. Yes, you know, works Allie. Mm -hmm. Yes, love Allie. Oh, my yeah. gosh. But actually, now that we're talking, I feel like this is a great tip for everybody. Um, so your practice was closed, and I was... And I thought, and I heard about you and, but it said online and like the system was like, you can't have her. She's too popular. And do you have any advice for someone in my, like in that situation where it says a practice is closed, but you yep. hear somebody's really great. For Kaiser anyways. Um, I always think it's super helpful to just contact member services and just let them know. I um, would really like to see blah, blah, doctor. I've heard mm -hmm. great things. And what happens is member services contacts us. Um, oh. And then I, you know, I, my policy is to always approve. Um, the oh. difficulty is, is that, you know, because I cover both the hospital and the um, office, I'm not always there when people need. So as you know, I'm really good about the emails and trying to catch up just because I'm, I can't split myself like five ways. Um, yeah. But that's actually really important. Whenever you're looking for an OBGYN or really any doctor, any doctor most people yeah. say like, you know, check Yelp. Um, but truthfully, you ask the nurses of mm -hmm. the hospital that you want to go to, because they're mm -hmm. the ones who actually really know the ins and the outs and how physicians manage different things. And those are the people who work with us in day in day out basis. They're the ones that really know what's going on. Yes, that's 
very helpful. And then if it says that they're closed, just I've heard also like you can write, well, I just got booked with you. And then I asked you in person, like, I'm very, I'm not crazy. Will you take me? Um, But you could like maybe write them a a letter or through Kaiser it's member services. Yep. Or just send an email. And then I usually just say, Oh, great. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, a friendship relationship kind of thing. And then I just tell my front staff and then they good okay I am gonna give her off to you um so my first two questions to start off with um number one obviously you're a wonderful OBGYN um you have a lot of wonderful hobbies I like that you like to cook with your partner which is I like my partner to cook for me so definitely related to you on that I'm really more of a sous chef you know I kind of feel like I'm really good at doing surgery um but in the kitchen not so much so I'm more of like the sous chef like what has to be chopped and then I just yep. support him. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, well, and then my personal questions were, do you have herpes? And then why don't you tell us about your book? Yeah. Yeah. So that is a book, you guys, that I actually wrote in um, 2016. Um, it's actually available on Amazon. And Which as is you where see, I you bought it. To get it. Yeah. Yes. So you're able to actually buy it in hard copy. Um, and you can also buy it um, as a Kindle version. So that, that way oh. no one really has to see. Um, it can download straight to your Kindle or your phone. Oh, that's um, nice. And so it just kind of is a protective mechanism um, for sure. people. And so um, it's a book that I wrote in 2016 because I was diagnosed with genital herpes when I was um, about 20 years old um, yes. in college before we had the internet. So I didn't really know oh, much I didn't about realize. it. Okay. I was reading it and then I didn't even put it together that you did not have the internet at the time. No, no. Oh. So that was like way back when. And it was really just my understanding of my journey and, you know, coming to recognition of it. Um, it's a unique story because it's a patient who is also a physician and I'm diagnosing people and I'm trying to give, you know, safe sex tips. And I honestly did not always follow them. And it's just reaching that journey of how to feel comfortable with something that is shameful and difficult to get over. And you don't want other people to know, Um, but you also don't want to be alone. And that my book really just shows that people are not alone. There are options. There's choices, even though you may not have had a choice to receive the virus. Um, And it's just, it's really uh, goes against the stereotypes that many people feel is what you think of, of genital herpes, right? Like you often don't think about a physician, you know, of, you know, a, um, an educated person um, and that it doesn't just come, it was from my first partner. So it's not even like multiple people. Like it was just my first person ever. Yes. Um, And just letting people know that you can thrive and survive and, and, and live despite this virus that you think may be shameful. And it really comes down to anything because it's not only just herpes. I mean, if it was something like you had been um, sexually assaulted when you were younger, if there's something um, that you're ashamed of with finances, if it's a weight body shaming issues, like it's has a whole bunch of different tools and tips to be able to overcome. And I think that that's super important. I was just going to say the same thing. And with so many questions that were sent in, so I'll tell you, I like sent out a like who has questions and I got it was like crickets and then I said they will be presented anonymously and it was like (laughs) yep yeah so and it was funny because like reading the questions I think a lot of people have overlapping questions but so much in women's health and sexual health is like 
oh, it's just me or like, let me Google because I don't know. Or like, even I found like with childbirth, when you talk to your friends about it, I'm before I had a kid and I had C-sections, but regardless, I was like, what's it like, you know, tell me. And it's very like, hush, hush kind of like, oh, it was rough, you know, six hours. And then I pushed it out. But you really, it's hard to get that like details. And so I really appreciate you. Yeah, you have to kind of really like distill down because if you were to look at WebMD, everybody's dying. Everybody's going to die. We're all dying. Um, <laughs> and so it's just having that critical thinking process just to know like, okay, well, what pertains to me, which one, you know, weighs more than others. So I always recommend if you can always best to get in touch with your OBGYN because they'll really tease it out for you. And then that way you're not confused or losing sleep because you just don't know how to manage it. Absolutely. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with also like making sure you're really comfortable with your OBGYN and like you could have someone super awesome to talk to. So if you are thinking of your OBGYN or you haven't been in a long time, like just think that you're not stuck with that person. You can always try somebody new. You can always ask around nurses or friends for referrals. So mm -hmm. very awesome. important. Yeah. All right. So I know that you love to give details and you're wonderful at answering questions. As I said, we have quite a lot of questions, so we'll try our best. And I kind of have tried to um, compartmentalize these, starting off with hormones, because I feel like we had a range of ladies answering questions from very young to still very young, you know, 50s, okay. 60s. But um, yeah. we'll start out with hormones because everyone has those, and yes. those are relevant for everybody. Yes. Um, so this is a this I'm gonna have like rapid fire questions, and then ones that I think you'll probably want to explain more. Okay. This is a rapid fire question. Okay. Maybe I'll say RF to trick okay. you. I'm just gonna show off to my tip cup. You off. Yes, mm -hmm. I love your cup. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why don't you okay. read it for okay. anyone who didn't see your oh, yeah. post earlier? Dr. Lawanzen at your cervix. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. amazing. Yeah. Okay, I'm ready. Is there tea in there or something more fun? Oh, well, you're just, I'm just going to have to leave you guessing. Okay, same here. <laughs> oh, bravo. Yeah, exactly. Okay, RF. After pregnancy, is weird facial hair related to hormones? And if so, what can you do to control or lessen it? So I think it's always really important to look at the whole clinical picture about um, hair growth because number mm. one is the location um, because it, we get a little bit more interested when it's hair growth on your chin, on your nipples, um, comes with deepening of your voice or like enlarging of your clitoris. So um, I think it's really important to look at the bigger picture and mm -hmm. also look at your family. Because if you come from a family that may be a little bit, um, you know, darker haired than others, you know, mm -hmm. in general, Asian populations have a little bit more less hair versus mm -hmm. perhaps like Greek, Italian, Persian. They have like. Uh-oh, you froze a little bit. Or maybe it's my internet. Hang tight. Uh-oh. Oh, okay. You're. I heard you now. You're back. Yes. Okay. okay. So if you're um, so Italian and you're hairy. Yeah. You just have to kind normal. of just look at everybody. But I would recommend talking to your um, OBGYN or your primary care doctor just to make sure because if there's some element of increased testosterone, there is a hormone that can cause um, increased hair growth. Um, you can use different methods to decrease the hormones. So some people find after they have babies and you know, that portion may not necessarily tie in, but your hormones can just be going crazy. It may just be the testosterone level that might be increasing. Um, and so you may just have to kind of bring that down with other meds so you can decrease it. Now it doesn't get rid of the hair that's already there. It can only prevent the hair that might be coming in in the future. 
Okay. So like waxing, bleaching, shaving. Yeah, electrolysis, laser, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Cosmetic yeah. options. Okay. Yeah. This question I loved. All right. I, I think you may have read this one. I may have sent it to you, but I thought it was really wonderfully worded. How, and, you know, you could probably, uh, any of these things, like I could talk for an hour about your book. We could have talked for an hour about your lessons. I know yeah. it's like a challenge. Um, but how do I holistically and gracefully enter perimenopause? A lot of my friends are getting ablations and hysterectomies or going back on the pill. Anything that you can do or education you can provide to prevent um, and avoid these like big extremes. Absolutely. So I think it's really important to take a look at your menstrual history before you hit menopause. So average age of menopause is 51. Um, generally, it can be around like 45 to 55. Okay. Um, the difficulty is, is that, um, the patients, let me back up. We never really know how long your menopause is going to take. And okay. menopause is defined by not having a period for 12 months. Okay. So you may notice that the cycles get closer together, further apart, really, really heavy, really, really light. And it can kind of just be everywhere. And so I think it's important to talk to your OBGYN because they find that most people who have heavy periods are the ones who are overweight or obese okay. um, who have a history of fibroid uteruses um, and okay. that's like um, benign balls of muscle inside the uterus um, and it can also be if you smoke um, and if there's any other health risks so that's kind of like everybody um, yeah yeah and so I usually tell people it's really important healthy diet and exercise will save you there's so many times patients come into my office and they're like I've done nothing different I'm eating the same and exercising the same and the weight doesn't come off. And now I'm really feeling my hormone changes every month. The issue is, is that I kind of feel like eventually your body's like, well, if you don't care, I don't care. Why? Yeah. You know, like there's, there's like a yeah. protective mechanism um, that right. your body has. And eventually it's just going to be like, yeah, I'm just not going to do it if you're not going to do anything. So I always encourage healthy oh. diet and exercise. Um, yeah. As I don't generally recommend ablations. Um, ablations, just for everybody out there, is essentially where um, there's a device that's placed through the cervix inside the uterus and helps to burn the lining of the uterus. So in my office, for instance, we use hot water. Um, way back when, they used to use vacuums. Um, they used to use like what's called a roller ball or almost kind of like burn the lining. And mm. what the thought process is, is that if you can decrease the shedding that you have when you have a period, you can mm -hmm. decrease the amount of bleeding and the heaviness that you have. Okay. The issue with an ablation is it's only 75% effective. So you may not get any benefit at all, in which case, is it worth it or not? And so some sure. people will say, um, well, I, I wanna go stepwise, let's do the different steps and let's see if I can avoid a hysterectomy. And mm -hmm. some people would say, forget this business, I'm just going to go straight for the hysterectomy because I don't want to putt-putt around. So okay. it really kind of just depends on how you are. And I generally recommend it's good to do it closer to perimenopause, so mid-40s, because okay. it's not going to work well for someone who's like 35. An ablation, um, you mean? An ablation. Okay. Yeah. And I know a lot of people, a lot of providers, probably outside of Kaiser, would do it. Um, but I don't know if it's necessarily going to be as effective because that lining just has a tendency to grow back. And so okay. you may not find as much benefit as other people may like. 
Okay. So you feel like with like hot flashes and like you're feeling menopause coming on, your periods are changing, diet and exercise, meaning like the pyramid and getting what, like 30 minutes of exercise a day are the best ways to kind of help your hormones balance out. Right. And I mean, if you take a look at JLo, the reason why she looks so great is yeah, because tell she's, us, lifting. Please. she's lifting. She's not drinking alcohol. <laughs> I mean, she said this. She's not drinking alcohol. She sleeps eight hours a day. She lifts. I mean, that girl is lifting 25, 30 pound weights. And so we don't have enough testosterone to build, bulk up like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So you mm. really have to build the muscle, which burns calories, which will happen while you're sleeping at night so it just has like a dual purpose past the fact it's you know great for your heart it's good for your bones you know all of those really important things um i also tell people too if they feel like they need a little bit of support there are pills that you can buy over the counter for instance like estroven which is a whole bunch of just chewed up plant hormones soybean black cohosh all of those things. And it might be just a little tip up that people need to support themselves um, with, with perimenopause. So some people find that that works. That's very interesting. And that actually goes right into our next question. Any safe hormone replacement that doesn't increase the risk of cancer or any natural help for menopause? Yeah, so that would be estrogen. I think that that works okay. really, really well. And some people just find that that's enough. Um, anything over the counter is not FDA approved. So you always want to make sure that you double check with your provider that there isn't any risks, um, okay. unless you have a history of perhaps breast cancer or, um, a risk of, uh, blood clots, um, or stroke, I would say, okay, be a little bit cautious, but otherwise, I mean, it's just like taking an extra vitamin C or a vitamin E or something like that. More natural. Right. To do. Got it. And then for anyone that doesn't know, I mean, obviously I'm an oncology nurse. So when I saw that question, I was like, yeah, that's not a great idea. Um, but like, if what's the deal with hormone replacement and why wouldn't you want to do that for menopause and why would you want to do that for menopause? Yeah. Yeah. So whenever people go through menopause, it really is an extensive di discussion to figure out with anything, the risk and the benefit. You always have to risk benefit and see what you feel the most comfortable with. So the options when someone's going through menopause is do nothing, hope that it gets better tomorrow. It's, a, it's always an option to do nothing, but it may not be satisfactory enough. Um, mm -hmm. And then hormone replacement is the next step because what happens when you're in menopause is, is the hormones are shooting high and low, up and down, you know, whereas it's kind of a little bit more gradual when you're having regular periods. And so people feel mm -hmm. the highs and the lows. That's why it comes with hot flashes and night sweats and um, sleep disturbances and irritability because you're like a teenager all over again. Like it's just <laughs> bananas. Um, and so what the hormones do, and that can be in a version of like a birth control pill, mm. or it can just be hormone replacement that you kind of just help to titrate is it just gives you a steady baseline. And okay. so by having that steady baseline, then hopefully you don't get those fluctuations as much and it stays stable. But the difficulty with it is that it can cause risks of um, breast cancer, strokes, heart attack. Um, you want to always take a look at the family history and make sure that there isn't anything in there that can also cause um, an increased risk. Um, but some patients think that that's reasonable. The other option I offer is the non-hormonal methods. I mean, that works really well for people who have had breast cancer or who have had strokes or blood clots. Um, and it's in the family of antidepressants. 
Um, I personally like things like Effexor, um, which is a great medication. They found that for women who are perimenopausal, is it helped to improve the menopausal symptoms? Mm. Um, and so it's I've for that extra that side of patients. Yes. Yeah. So Actually, I got into a big um, debacle with my primary care doctor years oh. ago about birth control and whether or not, because I have a very strong history of family history of breast cancer. So does it, like if you are just on regular over-the-counter, or not over-the-counter, oral contraceptive birth control, does that affect breast cancer development? So I think it depends. Um, you know, if it's a distant history, I always like to tease it out because we don't end up caring too much about third, fourth aunties or great, great grandparents. Really yeah. the people we care about is the first degree relatives. They really say that the increase is actually fairly slight compared to the general population. So it's only an, an additional one or 2% compared to mm -hmm. others. But when you hear, mm -hmm. I could be at risk because of my family history, people are just really cautious. And again, it comes down to whatever you feel the most comfortable with and what risks mm -hmm. you have. And if you are otherwise healthy and young, you know, I usually say younger than 35, um, you know, you can actually just go ahead and um, use it with actually very minimal risk. Um, but I think, again, it's a conversation and a shared decision making because you have to feel comfortable with it. Sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, oh, this is a good question. And this is kind of I think the last of our menopausal questions for anyone not in that stage, we're moving on. Um, how long should I expect to have menopausal symptoms after my cycle has stopped? So you mentioned 12 months with no periods is menopause. So, so how long are symptoms then? Yeah. So some studies have actually shown that, could, sorry, it could take up to seven years. Oh. <laughs> seven years of the hot flashes and the night sweats or perhaps the irregular uh, periods or the hot flashes that come with it. And I certainly have plenty. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. yeah. I have had some like 80 year old women who are like, I keep having hot flashes. I'm like, mm. hopefully not as bad. Um, and hopefully not as frequent. Um, but it can be up to seven. Oh, so I'm sorry, just for I'm just to clarify. Yeah. So once you start having like changes in your period, that's perimenopause. Yeah, yeah. So okay. often it's that, but it's usually also associated with the hot flashes and the night sweats. So okay. there are some people who approach me and say, well, I'm 42. I'm mm -hmm. starting to have my cycles acting a little bit funny, um, but it doesn't come with anything else. Often it's more hormonal fluctuations, maybe thyroid, things like that, not necessarily mm. like heading towards perimenopause. You always oh. have to look for other causes after 45 years old, or sorry, younger than 45 years old. Younger than 45. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, and now talking about hormones with breastfeeding. So I've heard so many different, oh wait, yeah, I, this is a quick one, R RF. I get palpitations when I start to decrease breastfeeding because the baby's sleeping through the night, for example. Is that caused by hormones? It could be hormonal. It may be a little bit of, I saw that email uh, message before. It might be a little bit of hormone shifts. Um, you know, I, there isn't a clinical thing that I've been taught that says, okay, when people start, stop breastfeeding, their thyroid, or, you know, they'll start to have palpitations. Mm -hmm. um, but if you actually just think, of the, the act of the breastfeeding and there's possibly fluctuations in 
fluid shifts. Um, I could see where maybe that could be part of it. I always encourage people after delivery to check thyroid because if there was perhaps bleeding issues or um, sometimes there's something called Sheehan syndrome and that can actually affect your thyroid um, and palpitations can be from there. You're expanding my mind. Wow. Okay. Um, thank you. I didn't mm -hmm. even think of that. Okay. Here's a good one. I have heard so many differing opinions on ovulation post-pregnancy. Can you ovulate before your period comes back after you have a baby? When can you actually get pregnant postpartum before your cycle returns? And like, how likely is that to get pregnant? Like if you're breastfeeding, you had a baby, you're breastfeeding, your period hasn't come back. Like how likely are you to actually, and this yeah. isn't just breastfeeding. This is like ever, you know? Yes. yes. Cause that's well, like the, so I didn't know I was pregnant people who yes. weren't so having super super interesting have you guys ever heard of irish twins do you know what irish twins are i sure do know what that yes. is mm -hmm. for anyone else that doesn't know yeah so essentially it's when you have your two babies born within a calendar year of each other so it's possible that some people could deliver a baby let's say in january ovulate get pregnant and end up delivering a baby in november or december um <laughs> and so that is just they're in the same birth year um but one of those things is that's super important is that they find after delivery particularly women will generally go back to ovulation about 80 percent of the time by the third month wow okay yes did and not so know that Yes. So you may not ever have a period. And because when people are breastfeeding, you'll either have periods every month, you may have it irregularly, you may not have it for nine months. But the studies have shown that most women begin ovulating like 80% by the third month. I did not know this. Yes. So that's why it's wow. super important that we talk about contraception um, so that yes. that way um, we're not caught in an incidental oopsie. So I'm always really nervous for the people who talk about natural family planning or pullout method um, before, you know, they, they're like, okay, well, it's no big deal. However, studies have shown that when the baby is breastfeeding, like actually on the breast, what happens is that it causes a negative feedback to your brain to down here, to your ovaries. So they say for the first six months, if you're exclusively breastfeeding, mm -hmm. not pumping, but exclusively breastfeeding, it could, could be considered a reliable method of contraception. But the issue is, is again, you're against this 80% in the third month. Yeah, that's a one in five chance of having another <laughs> family member. Exactly. And so that's why I'm always like, okay, this is the data you could exclusively breastfeed for six months, really, again, baby on the breast, um, but you may not get the protection as much as you want because really nothing is 100% effective. Yeah, that's true. But one in five is not good odds if you're going to do anything mm -hmm. <laughs> or not want, you know, another baby immediately. Exactly, exactly. Oh, that's such a good question. Actually, I had this question later, but um, so here but basically it oh here what is the minimum amount of time needed between babies and is that I always hear like two years or one one year to two years but is that actually delivery to delivery or delivery to uh conception, conception? yeah 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 so that's super interesting so it does make a big difference in terms of how you delivered your first baby okay. generally our recommendation is, is if you're going to get pregnant we if you're okay with having a C-section, 
having a 12 month span from delivery to delivery is okay. So your Irish twins or whatever is oh. okay. Yes. If you want to deliver vaginally, mm -hmm. then we would say that we would prefer at least um, 12 to 18 months from the time of delivery. Delivery so to really, delivery. Delivery to delivery. Okay. So okay. if you had a vaginal birth, then you should wait at least how many months to get pregnant after you, you had a baby? You can do whatever. You can do whatever. It, the only thing about the C-section is because you want that scar to heal. That's the biggest okay. thing. Um, because so certainly you, you want that scar to rupture. Yeah. So if you had a C-section, you need to wait at least how many months to conceive again? So if you're going to – so I would say – I mean, if you're going to deliver after, I mean, really, it could be one or two months because it's going to be, you would just, what? that means you just don't have the choice. You just don't have the choice of delivering vaginally. You would have to have a C-section, but you could get pregnant. And it would be recommended. It would be okay. I mean, we'd be like. Are you saying we should have a third child right now, Dr. Sheila? I'm saying we should take this <laughs> offline. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I like I always hear oh wait at least a year between babies but I feel like I've never heard it spelled out like delivery to conception or delivery to delivery and so and then in terms of like you're saying for a C-section scar tissue but is there other reasons why you would want to wait a certain amount of time between having No, I mean I'm a big fan um just because you think about all of the junk that comes out from delivery you know I would give it at least 3 months three to six months, let the uterus heal. The only reason why is because if there is any kind of inflammatory process inside the uterus, that may not be a hospitable environment for a baby and a new placenta to grow. Um, and so some studies, and I can't tell you the exact number, but there is an increased risk of preterm labor. They say sometimes mm -hmm. preterm labor is caused by an inflammatory response in the body. And so if you're trying to get pregnant too quickly because you're trying to get these babies close together so they could love each other and go to college together, then, you know, I really think you just want to be very cautious because, again, that uterine lining has to regenerate and be nutritious enough for a, a healthy pre pregnancy to grow. And so I, I would say if you cannot rush it, I, that would be probably most ideal. But, I mean, yeah, are there babies that are born back-to-back -back and no issues? Of course. But, you know, I'm always in the business of healthy baby, healthy mom. So, yeah. yeah. This is actually a good – I mean, people are having babies later in life. I forget how old I am. I might be 33. You can check my record if you have it. I'm just kidding. Um, but what is – more dangerous, if you will, in terms of like they talk about advanced maternal age or geriatric pregnancy, like how concerned do you need to be of having a baby over 35 versus having babies close together? Yeah, so I think it's really important, you know, as we get older and in the Bay Area, I don't know how many of the people listening are from the Bay Area, but it's quite common for women to have babies much younger because we're focused on the careers generally kind of beforehand. Um, and so advanced maternal age, never say the word geriatric. Um, no, but it age, is, it do, do you not use that at all? Anyway, I've heard it, but I, I didn't know if it. No, advanced okay. maternal age is kind of where we go. Or, I mean, in our charts, we even talk about elderly. I mean, come on. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it's older than 35. Anybody older than 35. So 35 seems to be the magical point where we say before that, if you're trying to conceive, you should try for 12 months. Um, when you hit 35, we say try to conceive for six months. Um, the reason why is because we don't want to waste any time of people getting pregnant um, in the after 35 range. Now, I'm not a big proponent of, oh my gosh, you're 36. 
you just have now a boyfriend, you should get pregnant now because your eggs are, you know, I'm, I'm not in that business because I think everything should be appropriate and financially stable and you stable and, you know, all these different things. But as we get older, there's an increased risk of diabetes, um, of high blood pressure. Oh. Um, and as we get older too, the egg quality decreases. So okay. that's one of the reasons why the increased risk of chromosome abnormalities happen is because the egg quality is not so great. Now there's a ton oh. of things that you can do to maximize your egg quality. Certainly I've delivered people who are 42 and 44 and have no complications and got pregnant spontaneously. Um, so, you know, that, that just, what are these things that you can do? Yeah, so there's actually an awesome book. I don't know um, if anybody out there has read, but it's called It All Starts With an Egg. Um, it's on mm -hmm. Amazon. And okay. um, the thought process is, is that um, the eggs that you release when you get pregnant or, you know, are ovulating are created three months in advance. Okay. Um, and so there's a lot of recommendations of doing prenatal vitamins. It, I used to say one month ahead of time. Now I actually say three months. Mm -hmm. um, but then it also talks about antioxidants like vitamin C and vitamin E um, and making sure your vitamin D levels are appropriate, that your thyroid is appropriate. And so I really love this book. Um, I can't remember her last name, but it's by a woman um, – first name Rebecca and it's called it all starts with an egg and you can get it on Amazon I have no you know I don't get affiliation yes I don't get any <laughs> kickback from her um, but I think it's really helpful because she's gone through infertility and um, she's gone through a lot of literature and she created this book that I think is actually very helpful for people but it's even things like get rid of the plastic in your house and you oh. know look at the um the way that you clean your um your your uh, your kitchen and all the things that you put in the house so okay this was not on the questions but since you mentioned it now you have piqued my curiosity um how do you think that like the use of plastics or like cleaning supplies let's say you're having trouble getting pregnant like would that make a difference I would say at this point, it doesn't hurt. I mean, because the, the issue is, is that I think in the United States, we don't have as much strict monitoring of a lot of the things that we have in our homes compared to, let's say, Europe. Um, and I think as consumers in the United States, we're always looking for the quickest, um, you know, throwaway thing, manufactured, easy life kind of stuff. And yeah. with that, I think can come some products that may fall through the cracks or may not be as healthy for us. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, I've actually, I used to heat up all of my food in, in the plastic and I was like, maybe that's a bad idea when I saw it all warped. And I was like, mm, yeah, I, I know whenever that. that happens to me, I'm like, maybe I shouldn't be eating that. <laughs> right. Or like in your um, to-go container and then you're microwaving the styrofoam and then it's all like, you know, holes in it because the food cheese went through and I'm just like, so, I mean, I think that there's some element, um, but in the end, I found that when women are having infertility issues, they just want to do everything they can. And so yeah. if, if that ends up increasing your longevity of life and helps you get pregnant, I mean, what's the harm really? Well, I'll tell you what. So it's actually an interesting because with oncology and avoiding cancer, it kind of correlates as well. I always wonder about like stress and if, I mean, it probably helps give you a sense of control but then like if it if it's to the point where it's causing you stress where you're like going out of your way and stressing about certain things like Tupperware or plastic bags or whatever like mm -hmm. what's the what's the fine line yeah 
I don't know. I don't know. But I think if that's something that people can do to help themselves, um, you know, and, and decrease the perfumes, you know, in the house sure. and watch the nail polish that you, you know, may have on your nails all the time that aren't allowing your nails to breathe. I mean, there's so many things that, you know, I think, um, I'm a big proponent. Skin is super, is, is like one of the biggest organs that we have. So I'm a huge fan of exfoliating it like crazy because clogged mm. pores is not going to help you detoxify, which can increase, you know, a whole bunch of other things in the body. So mm. however you end up using it, but I know, um, the difficulty is when people are trying to get pregnant, they'll pretty much throw money at everything. Sure. Um, and I, just I think so my sister went through like over a dozen rounds of IVF. So I hear you on that. Like it's mm -hmm. definitely when people want to start a family, I always say like for us, we wanted to start a family yesterday. So you're like willing to try anything. So it sounds like basically as long as it's not causing you distress or stress that if you're willing to try other things and it's not harmful, then go for it. Kind of thing. Right. And if you can financially handle it, right. I mean, if that sure. is what you can afford, I mean, that's a whole other, that's a whole other conversation. Absolutely. Um, but you know, the other thing I wanted to mention is that, when patients are older than 35, they're also at a more increased risk of um, C-sections. Mm. Um, so that's also something to always think about with patients um, because, you know, if you've had a history of abdominal surgeries, you know, it's important just to tell people. And if someone's diabetic and they have a big baby and they may need a C-section, that might be something to kind of, you know, walk them through too. Got it. Good, good things to think about. Okay, well, I wanna be conscious of the time I think we have some good questions. Let's, so we have about seven minutes left until you're going to turn into a pumpkin, but yeah. also our agreed upon stop time. Yeah. Um, should you wait to conceive until after the pandemic? Yes or no, or maybe. Okay. So I will tell you that um, we have not been given any guidelines in terms of what this means for family planning. Um, okay. All that we've been given from public health is to make sure that you're wearing a mask and washing your hands and social distancing. Um, okay. So if you happen to live with your partner and you're trying to get pregnant, I, we have not been told that you shouldn't. Um, you know, the beautiful thing about at least being in California is, well, I guess now our numbers are going up, but I was gonna say- Everybody's like, I think are going to since everything just reopened. I think so, but I think in the end we have people coming into the hospital delivering babies with their partners, only one partner at their um, bedside. Um, yeah. But we haven't said, you know, let's just increase our contraception right now so people don't get pregnant at this time. So I would say if you're ready for it, go for it. And, you know, we'll just have to go from there. Yeah, there's always something I have to say, like looking back in history, there was like H1N1, SARS, like, if, like Zika virus, if you're always like attuned to what's going on in the world, there's always going to be something that's yep. scary. And so mm -hmm. obviously, this is something we haven't dealt with before. But it seems like it's good to know there haven't been any official recommendations against getting No, pregnant. no. And in fact, and, and people ask me like, well, how is it going to be in the hospital? And I was like, well, you're going to push the same, you know, yeah. our indication for a C-section are still going to be the same. Um, none of that changes at all. So um, I would just say if you're in the right mind with the right partner, everything's lining up. Yeah, go ahead and go for it. Got it. I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was actually pretty surprised by how not different it was delivering pre-covid and during covid besides the visitors i was i kept waiting for someone to show up in like a hazmat suit and it never happened 
no, no, no. It's a more very streamlined. <laughs> yeah. um, is there any way to, uh, any actually accurate way to try to conceive a specific gender baby? Oh, no, I don't have that. If I had that, I would so. Shuttle method? I hadn't heard of the <laughs> shuttle method. I don't know what that is. Uh, my guess, okay, I have heard people saying if you um, have sex, like, or whatever, the scientific. If you have sex, like, earlier, then you're more willing to have, likely to have a girl because the, it can, the sperm can wait longer for the egg. But if you have sex the day that you ovulate, then it's more likely to be a boy because. Oh, you've got me. I don't know if that is scientifically proven. I have not seen that in like the New England Journal or, you know, what we call the Green Journal or or, um, the the OBGYN Journal. Um, I, yeah, I have no recommendations. That's okay. (laughs) I have a funny story. I'm not going to sell out my friend that this was, but she really wanted to have a boy and she had heard of this like family douching method that you could do this like special recipe and then supposedly have a boy so she texts her friend's mother on accident thinking it was her friend saying do you have that recipe for douching so that I can be sure to have a boy and the friend's mom was like I don't know what you're talking about I'm so sorry and (laughs) I felt really bad for her (laughs) well did she get a recipe she did not and she does not have a boy at this point (laughs) unfortunately yeah I have not heard of anything if if it is what we call like a midwifery you know midwife's tale um yeah but I haven't I haven't heard of targeting anything yeah I know probably maybe you know who knows what would happen if if we could figure that out but um okay gosh we're in crunch time I have three quick questions that I'm hoping we can go through what's the best thing to do during pregnancy to help with delivery and recovery Oh, so I'm a big fan of making sure you're exercising during your pregnancy. I think that that is that super, helpful. super helpful. Yeah, yeah because that'll help with the recovery and the bounce back and the weight loss. Um, and it helps with pushing, which means you'll push less, which means, you know, more effective pushing in, in an efficient, shorter amount of time. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of taking the prenatal vitamins, um, postpartum, drinking plenty of water. Um, if you can, and I realize it can be a little difficult with other people in the house, um, but really taking care of yourself and taking care of your stitches. I think that that really helps a lot with the recovery. Um, what does that mean taking care of your stitches? Oh, so that would be doing like things like sitz baths, um, or, uh, Mm. which is Epsom salt in warm water. Um, Mm -hmm. it helps to soothe the stitches, helps them heal and keeps it clean. Um, you know, working on making sure you're, you have soft stool, you know, then that way you're not straining mm. too hard when you get home, I think it's also yeah. super helpful. Um, that's really it. But you know, I think the diet, probably are, good diet, pardon? having a good diet, maybe. Yeah, yeah, not so much junk food, nutritious things. No Taco Bell every night. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could <laughs> splurge it, but <laughs> it's all balanced. Um, okay, twice my OB shrugged off my request for pelvic floor therapy. Now what? Should I get a new doctor? Yeah, so I think it depends on which facility or medical group you're part of. I know we, mm-hmm. in our facility, don't have pelvic floor um, therapists um, that we oh. automatically refer people to. We do have them, but mm-hmm. that we don't okay. automatically refer all postpartum patients. Um, but yeah. my best friend delivered a baby, um, and she was automatically referred. Like, that was, like, their oh, standard protocol. So wow. um, 
it kind of depends on which medical group you're with. And I wouldn't shun your doctor if they didn't maybe perhaps offer it. Um, but I think you can ask for it. Yeah, but um, if this person asked twice saying, you know, something's happening, either I'm having incontinence or painful right. sex or what. So if they've asked their doctor twice feeling like something's not wrong, mm -hmm. um, would you think I'm back? Um, so if they've asked their doctor twice feeling like I would really benefit from this and the doctor was not giving them that referral, what would you, would you think that they maybe want to find a different doctor or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's worthwhile to get a second opinion. Um, yeah, you know, definitely. I've certainly had people come to me and be like, okay, I'd like talk to five people and no one will listen to me. Can you at least listen to me? And then, you know, usually that's always to tricky to, to be like, Oh, those other people you saw we're idiots but not really but uh -huh. definitely we always say there's no um egos in oncology i hope it's the same with gynecology you know that it never hurts well, to get I a mean, second opinion I, I think it depends i think that depends i mean just like all personalities you know it just depends but i think if you get the right person who's willing to listen here's the pain here's the request I mean, I think that we'll try to meet on some level. I think that it's always really important to make sure you're maintaining an appropriate level of medical care. Like, we're not going to be like, you know, if someone came in and was like, chop off my healthy right leg, we're not all going to be like, oh, so you've asked seven people, I'm going to be the one to do that. You know, yeah. like, we're going to be like, well, tell me the reason why you have those issues. And, you know, we'll try to tease it out. But for the, I mean, a pelvic floor is always really helpful. Um, so I would say, you know, there's no harm. So why yeah. not? get another opinion at least if not changing yes. doctors for sure um yes let's see how many more of these we can I know it's how close to a pumpkin do you feel that you are no no, no I can I'm I'm, I'm you're super open I'm for good. a few yeah. more okay yeah. well let's see how many more we can squeeze in because we're actually close to the end of the the main ones um how long does it truly take the body to heal after a baby specifically after fourth degree tear or really like any tears and then does it add time mm -hmm. if it's fourth degree Right. Um, so fourth degree for people who don't know out there. So when you deliver a baby, there's out of four degrees, essentially, depending on the type of tissue that is torn. Um, the type that I'm talking about is the one that's kind of like straight down the middle. Um, fourth degree is essentially going through all the superficial, all the deep tissue through the rectus muscle and all the way through. So it's a four out of four. Um, in my experience, often it can take patients quite a long time to recover from a fourth degree. Um, let's say, for instance, a second degree can take up to four to six weeks. Some people bounce back really fast, but those stitches themselves could be there for four to six weeks. So I usually tell people if they're going to have a fourth degree, it's probably going to take several months. Um, again, depending on how well their tissue yields, how difficult it is to poop, how well they've been taking care of their stitches. Um, so it kind of depends. I usually tell people even after a C-section, I feel like after six months is when you really feel like, what? I had a baby other than looking down and seeing a baby. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of liken fourth degrees to pretty much the same. I will say that there's, you know, make sure nothing's wrong. Make sure you're healing appropriately. But I think number one, just the actual recovery and then the fear within the recovery can be pretty tough yeah if you're like i had my tissue ripped through my butthole and then you're trying to have sex that's just it's right. awful right right and, and i'm really glad for a c-section i mean for one that's <laughs> Oh, well, I usually tell honest. people whenever you're going to be sexually active the first time, communication and lubrication are like the two most important things. Communication and lubrication. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much, and then you just go slow 
And, uh, you know, I mean, we deliver babies six, seven, four, you know, whatever babies. So yeah, we'll get back to okay. it. So up to six months, uh, there, I'm in a mom's group online and there are some wild women in there, but somebody asked a question like, how long did you actually wait until after birth until you had sex? And there were so many people that said like one week, two weeks. And I was like, oh my gosh. What I mean, I remember in residency, this is so off the topic, but I remember in residency, like a 18 year old had delivered a baby and we walked in for postpartum rounds and she was having sex already. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. I hope you didn't tear my stitches. I hope you didn't tear my stitches. But I mean, they were in the hospital bed and I was like, this is crazy. I mean, just because we're there, um, when I worked in, on an oncology unit, I remember my preceptor was saying that she walked in on one of our patients giving a blowjob to her partner, and she let, was like, oh, and like walked out. And it had been a patient that had been on the unit for like months and months, so they were super close. And oh she told God. the charge nurse, like, oh my gosh, I just walked in on so-and-so. And the charge nurse was like, you have to go and, and educate her on safe sex. Like, she can't be doing that right now because oh. she's neutropenic. And I was like, I would die. <laughs> I would literally be like, I have, here's my badge. Thank you. <laughs> there's, there's so many things. I mean, an OBGYN in oncology, I mean, you, you're dealing with, uh, yeah. I mean, we could have a situation just with that alone. I know. Um, gosh, I could literally pick your brain forever because now my mind is going to someone and like you have, okay. If for anybody, if you go to your, Instagram handle, you can go back and see all of the um, articles that you've been a part of and on your website. And yeah. so I, I thought a lot of those were very interesting. Like yeah. I liked about waxing and pubic hair and like, and yeah. there was something where maybe an OB shamed a woman for waxing. And yes. um, right. so really, I mean, I think this is important for everybody to hear, like, do you care if someone is waxed or has no. very long pubic hair that could be braided like would you be offended nothing. would you think that's nothing. disgusting like what no no and that is a very social um decision because i actually think people are flipping the other direction you know we used to go with the lack of hair but i actually feel like now people are going into a more natural look and whether that was a shelter in place decision or <laughs> or if that was a completely independent decision but we it, you know it, the pendulum swings back and forth um yeah. i i would say the only time that i found okay well maybe the hair might be an issue is when it was long after a delivery and i was trying to do a repair because the hair was, you know, getting caught in the way. Um, and you want to make sure, of course, yeah. that everything stays as sterile and as clean as possible. But I mean, did we get it done? Yeah. Did she heal fine? Yeah. So really, it's not that big of a thing. But it's really comes down to a personal preference. Um, yeah. You know, I have so many patients who apologize for not taking a shower before they come into the office. And I'm like, uh, first off, as an OBGYN, I don't breathe through my nose. <laughs> Number two, it really... I, you know, that doesn't even register, you know, it doesn't register. People are like, Oh my gosh, I'm so ashamed. And I'm like, I can't tell you from the first person today, from the last person today, from the person yesterday, you know, there's no, it's like, it's a blur. Whatever. In the end, I mean, you guys are all very unique, but I really don't focus and like mentally track. How You're not like, <laughs> no. <laughs> when did you shower that? Yeah, like it just it doesn't it doesn't even register. So please come as you are and just you know it does not affect us whatsoever. I like that a lot. Come as you are. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's too good. Um okay, two more. I'm gonna try to 
Oh gosh, these are all such good questions. I wish that we could just keep going and, and going Tracy, and going. Tracy, I'm more than happy to come back. I I love this. I so. think we might need it because we there were so many good questions. But okay, any libido boosting tips that are not drug? Oh, okay. Libido is such a huge topic. And for whoever may have submitted that question, I actually just quoted the book. So there's a really wonderful book. It's by this woman called Emily Nagoski. Um, she's a PhD. I mean, and her book is called Come As You Are literally. Mm. Um, and I think it's super important to tease out because there can be people who are asexual. There could be something that happened in the relationship that makes them have a decreased libido. Um, you know, the biggest thing that I always tell people is that, um, it's super important to kind of just tease out when did it happen? Was there circumstances around it? Um, one of the basic easy things that we always tell people is, again, healthy diet and exercise. Because in the end, if you're going to be there naked, you want to feel good or somewhat good or can at least ignore the way that you either <laughs> feel about yourself or, you know, because you have to get past that because that mental block in itself is going to be a deterrent. Mm -hmm. So that's always the first thing I always say too, if there was some type of um, partnership issue that is very much going to affect the way that you interact with your partner. And certainly women are more into uh, focused on the intimacy mm -hmm. of intercourse um, and, and, and sexual relations and everything. And, and everything has to be almost perfect before people want to be sexually active to begin with. Like the laundry has to be done. The kitchen yeah. has to be clean. The Otherwise your mind is like going. Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that can make it really difficult for people to orgasm, get in the mood, feel like someone's going to walk in on them. Um, and so you kind of have to tease out all the different things, but unfortunately there's no real magical pill for women to increase libido. Um, they've kind of played around and toyed around with different kind of blue pill type things. Um, oh, we really haven't found it. Um, testosterone mm -hmm. is something that's kind of been played around with a little bit more in women who are menopausal or, or okay. perimenopausal. Um, but it, there's very strict criteria on 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 what qualifies you for that so okay. um you really have to tease it out but um if you're just trying to like learn and research more i mean it's a pretty thick book um but it's called come as you are i love it oh like how do you spell that a c-o-m-e okay yeah. oh but it is about orgasming but it's about orgasms it's about libido okay. it's about all of it okay um so you feel like, I mean, for anybody who doesn't have like nothing big has changed, like they just want to increase libido, exercise and diet, you feel like it's kind of a... Yeah. I mean, and if you are, um, what do they call them? Like a adventurer or a voyager, I don't know. like oh. if you want to spice it up, I mean, feel mm -hmm. free to move it outside, I guess. Feel free to, you know, another thing that her book always says is think about the time when you found it like the most sexually either empowering experience or liberating. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And what was it about? Was it the fact that it was, you know, covert underneath a bridge after like dinner at a restaurant? Was <laughs> it the fact that the kids weren't at the house and, you know, everything was aligned and your partner wasn't being an idiot? Like what was it that made that exciting? And then tr trying mm -hmm. to tease that out and recreate that over again. Okay seems like really for women it's a lot it's very much mind focused so much so much like very very much so okay i like that and you don't emily what was the author's last name nagoski so it's um n-a-g not o-s-k-i nagoski 
I'm going to have to do like Dr. Luanzen's book club list after we're done and all included. I love those two that I recommended. I think that those two I, I recommend to people who are trying to get pregnant and for people who are um, uh, having libido issues or, you know, body changes. Um, I have a few others. I can, I'm more than happy to actually do a book club because I have I would a few love that. That, I, that I like. Yes, let's do a post. We'll do this, yeah. a little book yeah. list. Yeah. I love it. Okay, um, final two questions, if we can. Are you yeah. mad? It's like no, I'm into it. Time. Okay, how do I make postpartum sex less painful? And then I sent you, I had seen this account that was called the K-Curve, mm-hmm. and it looks a little medieval. I'll just, it was like mm-hmm. stainless steel, but um, it, and it was so tight. So, so someone postpartum is saying it's so tight. What would you recommend? Yeah. So the difficulty is, is that when after a delivery and there's things that split, you know, to have the help your baby come through, we have to put it all together. It's, it can look a little bit like a Picasso. Um, and we have to just kind of be like, okay, this side matches to that side. Okay. Let me just. You're saying the labia, like. Kind of. Yeah. Like the hymenal ring to that hymenal ring. So you're like an, you're like a vaginal artist in some ways. Like the, like it was like this and then the baby came and it's like this and then you have to make it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we have to make it functional. We have to make it look good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes, unfortunately, if, if the tissue is swollen or we over sew, sometimes it can be a little bit tighter. So it's almost like you have to practice on restretching it again. So some people will, that just takes practice and sexual activity. Um, for some people, they may have to use dilators to try to get the tissue to stretch. Um, sometimes people will use like coconut oil or some type of lubricant and just kind of like slowly try to stretch the perineum. Um, and then after that, if it doesn't work, I recommend going back to your OBGYN because there can be, uh, procedures that we can either loosen it and just kind of open it up a little bit, or sometimes tissue gets tinted up and you have to try try to pull down on tissue to be able to insert without dragging in extra tissue. Um, so, I mean, there's so many different things that can happen. So super important to go see your OBGYN. And this um, isn't just for vaginal birth though, too. Like I Googled this and C-section patients also it sounded like anyone who had a baby exit their body whatever way could have issues like this especially I saw for three months that it was like could be an issue that was very common yeah because even if you end up having a c-section that's considered a major surgery you're going through abdominal muscles and so um even just to rebuild those muscles and kind of you know conquer your lower pelvis can be really difficult to figure out so um, yeah, it can, it can factor in for both people. So the K-curve, that's the name of it? K-curve? Yes, K-curve. Yeah. So I actually, I didn't know about this actually until you sent it. Um, yeah. so for those of you guys who don't know, it literally looks like a, like a shape like this. Um, mm-hmm. and you can use it to massage the internal muscles. So when you deliver a baby just out of anatomic okay so you have your vaginal opening here's your urethra here's like your rectum and it's here when you deliver a baby it kind of stretches and opens it's this muscle here it's called the bulbocavernosus muscle um and sometimes when you deliver it can either you know stretch or it can tear um and we stitch it back together to rebuild the perineum again but what can happen is is that we may catch a nerve or we may tighten that muscle too much that it might make it difficult for the um, the penis to be able to come through. I don't even know if this is appropriate. I'm just anatomic terms, right? 
Yeah, I can see. But I have to I warn you, my battery is almost out. It's giving me a 55 second warning. Oh, okay. And so anyway, so it can be really tight. So you just want to use that um, device and help stretch it out. It's as if you had a tight neck muscle and you use a machine and like stretch it out. Same thought mm -hmm. process. But um, K-Curve, you can look it up online. It might and work. It might just take some stretching to get there. Okay. I like yeah. it. Yeah. I'm sorry, but this is probably best because I could literally keep um, picking your yeah. brain forever and ever and it'd be like 1am and I'm like, do you have time for one more question? Yeah. So um, <laughs> 25 seconds remaining on my battery. This is amazing. But thank you so much. I love thank you. you. I'm so thank glad you that you accepted me into your practice. And if anyone doesn't have an OB as awesome as this, I recommend <laughs> you continue your search whether or not you're in the Bay Area. And um, thank you so much. We love you. And well, I'd love to have you back if you'd be willing to have us. 